So Jesus, I pray that you would open those words to us in such a way that uh, they'd make us different people, not just more educated people, but actually different. So pray that together in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Welcome to Bell Prez. You've already been welcomed, but I want to welcome you again um, so that this can be an extra welcoming space. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online. We're so glad that you are um, here, however you are here. We are in the middle of a series on revival called Revive. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a couple of uh, pretty famous passages of Scripture to talk about how the Holy Spirit wants to breathe life into the dead things in our lives and revive them. It's been a rich series. Um, and as we look at these things this morning, one of the things that we discover is that when revival breaks out, as it does in Acts chapter 2, when revival breaks out, people open their lives. People open their homes. People start sharing their stuff as evidence of the Holy Spirit being at work. In other words, when revival breaks out, hospitality breaks out. It's pretty amazing. Recently, I was asked by the executive team here at the church to kind of do some research of how we as a church practice hospitality. And what I found was this. We are a pretty friendly church. We're actually a very friendly church. This has actually been my experience from the beginning when I came here a couple years ago. This is a friendly church. But there are some interesting challenges to the way that our campus is laid out and how our services kind of all overlap so you're just sort of always passing each other. Um, there's things that can make the experience here challenging. So for example, I recently took some pictures of how challenging it can be just to find our church. Um, and I've talked to several people who actually uh, commute past Belprez on Bellevue Way. They've been doing it for years. They had no idea there's a church here. It's kind of nondescript. It's kind of hard to find. So let me just give you some examples. Here's our, uh, one of our main entrances. So that's pretty, wow, <laughs> stunning. I am very compelled to go in there. Fortunately, if you miss that one, you get to make a right on 17th into another wow kind of flash, bang. Okay, and the, but if you miss that, you get to make another right turn, and then you get enter on, uh, on 100th, and that's what it looks like there. So everything about this church just screams, come in. We want you here. Now, if somehow as a first-time guest, you were able to navigate uh, the off-site parking up at Bellevue Christian or Clyde Hill, one of the things you find as soon as you get up there, well, you take the shuttle down, and it's peaceful, and it's great, and everything's going well, and then, and then you get let off at the beautiful shuttle drop-off. How's that for a first impression? <laughs> Welcome to Bell Prez. Got any recycling? <laughs> um, so if you, if you get through all that and you've managed to get here and, and you have children, well, then you've got a whole other level of stuff to navigate. And I see some parents nodding their heads. Yes, you've got to find out where to go with your children, how to get them there, how to check in your children, how to pick up your children and where, because it's different from where you drop them off. And then you've got to learn what paperwork to fill out when your children go missing somewhere in the upper building, because it's just a lot of folks. I'm just kidding, but nobody's missing. Everything's fine. Our children's staff are unbelievable. They're awesome. Uh, and besides that, it's obvious, you know, where our children and youth spaces are because they're the most vibrantly colorful and just amazingly wonderful places. I'll give you an example. Just like, wow, I want to be there <laughs> and just screams youth and vitality. Um, so we've got some challenges, right? All that's tongue in cheek, but, but we've got some challenges about our space that, that can be inhospitable, even if we are hospitable. 
My point is that even friendly, warm churches like ours have a really hard time practicing hospitality. It takes a lot of intentionality, especially to offer the kind of hospitality that can change our neighborhoods, our world. So with that in mind, I just want to make four quick observations about how God uses our practice of hospitality as a chief means by which he blesses and heals the world. So the first observation is this. Belonging equals life. Belonging equals life. We were made to belong. Everything about how we are wired is made to belong. The belonging we were made for, though, is not this exclusive kind of belonging, like, you know, some, some people are in a club and some people are out of the club and can't get in. It's not exclusive. This kind of belonging, Jesus' kind of belonging, manifests itself in inclusivity. To explain more, I've got to give you a, a pretty painful 90-second language lesson. Okay? So just hang with me. It's going to be over soon. Ready? Okay, that's how I'm going to go ahead anyway. As followers of Jesus, as followers of Jesus and followers of his words that are recorded in Scripture, we believe God exists in three persons. Whoa. We believe God exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to unwrap the idea of the Trinity, but it's enough, now, uh, enough for now to say this. God exists in perfect fellowship within himself. In other words, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit exist in perfect communion, in a constantly replenishing circle of mutual blessing. They are three persons, one God. One God manifest in three persons. That makes my brain hurt. There is a Greek word, oh gosh, a Greek word used by early church leaders to describe this kind of relationship, and it's this, perichoresis, perichoresis. Peri means around. It's where we get our word periphery. And choresis means to contain. It's from the same word where we get choreography, as in dance choreography. John of Damascus, an early church father, describes perichoresis as cleaving together to encircle with joyful dancing. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit exist in a perfect dance of perfect intimacy constantly blessing and constantly being blessed by each other, moving in and out of one another. It's this mind-blowing concept that we're never going to get our heads totally around on earth. But it's a helpful image. Encircled, safely contained, this dance of intimate joy. Okay, lesson's over. Here's why this matters. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to his Father on our behalf. Jesus, God the Son, is praying to God the Father for us, for you and for me. And this is what he prays. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Check this out. Jesus' prayer for his followers, for you and for me, is that we would be one, the same way that he is one, that we would experience oneness as he constantly experiences oneness, this dance of joyful, mutual blessing. Now, if that's too abstract for you, which is still too abstract for me, kind of picture it this way. This is a picture of me and my boy rider that looks like this. Perichoresis, right there. 
to dance around this joyful, mutual blessing, smiling, blessing, encircled, containing. That's not just what you are invited into. As followers of Jesus, you're already there. I know it doesn't feel like that, but your identity is actually this. And you don't have to do anything to earn it. This is you. That's what we were made for, to be included and to be inclusive because belonging equals life, real life. The kind of life that we are actually included in, but we're still kind of learning how to live in. That's why when the Holy Spirit shows up in Acts chapter two, as we read earlier, and he starts to manifest his presence in various ways, one of the clearest things we see as a result is inclusivity, belonging, hospitality, Relational intimacy starts to spring up. Enemies get reconciled. Marriages get restored. New friendships come out of nowhere. People begin opening up their lives to one another, their homes, their stuff, in this practice of radical hospitality. And that's what happens when revival comes. People are made to feel like they belong. In fact, belonging is one of the clearest signs of revival. I feel like I belong. And so caught up are people when they get this sense of belonging, in that sense of belonging, that they confidently and consistently work hard to include others, to make sure they feel like they belong. Belonging equals life. That's my first observation. The second one is this. Rejection is death. That seems like kind of a duh sort of moment, right? If belonging equals life, rejection equals death. But this is worth exploring in more detail because we don't often realize how much death we experience on a daily basis because we don't feel like we belong, not deep down anyway. Out of a sense of rejection, we go looking for approval in the wrong places. We work harder so that we can find our worth in our work, in our physical attractiveness, in our accomplishments of some kind, in our, you just fill in the blank for yourself. You name it, we use it to prop ourselves up and to push down that deep-seated sense of rejection that we all carry around every day and the results are catastrophic. We work too hard and our families fall apart. We go looking for acceptance in the wrong person's arms and we ruin our marriages. We go looking for belonging in the wrong kind of work. Maybe it's work that pays well enough, but it is not a fit and our soul quietly withers. Most of us walk around most of the time feeling like we don't quite fit, like we don't quite belong. And as a result, we slowly die inwardly. A couple more quick examples to flesh this out for you. One silly, one serious. Here's the silly one. I once spoke, uh, when I was working down in California, the church down there, I once spoke at this high school camp. It was about 10 hours away and drove all the way there, and I didn't know anybody at this high school camp. Even the high school pastor who was my contact for this camp had chosen that week to go on vacation with his family. I didn't know anybody at this camp when I showed up. Now, nevertheless, I had prepared well. I had my notes going. I had my PowerPoint firing. Everything looked good. I was going to wow these students into spiritual maturity. Um, This was a great plan on my part. The only problem was there was no electricity at this camp. And I didn't speak until after it was dark that first night. So no one could see me. I couldn't see my notes. It was a disaster. I felt like a failure. On top of all that, I started getting sick. 
I went to bed that night feeling like, this is all a bad idea. And I don't belong here. Now, this was a rafting trip, so we go rafting the next day. And it turns out there's no more rafts left for camp speaker guy. So I ended up with this leaky little one-man kayak. Everybody else is safe, sound, splash around. Oh, aren't these rapids fun? I'm like, I'm going to die. <laughs> more rejection. Still, I tried to do my best, right? Because I'm camp speaker guy. I'm trying to do my best to encourage everybody. So I'm kind of going along these, by these students, trying to keep up, trying to keep from drowning. And I'm like, so what school do you go to? What kind, of, you know, what kind of music do you enjoy? Do any of you know rescue breathing? Because I might just lose this. <laughs> Nothing. Blank stares, total rejection. At the end of the day, after eight hours on the river, this girl walks up to me and she says, oh, you're the camp speaker, aren't you? All this time we thought you were just a creepy river guide. <laughs> Thanks. Permanent woundedness. Now, when we feel rejected, we make foolish choices. So long story short, I made a foolish choice in this moment. The next day, when everybody went rafting, I stayed back at camp by myself, totally on my own, stayed back at camp. I collected all my preaching outlines. I put together all my notes, and I wrote them a note that said, hey, you guys seem great, but this just isn't working out. I put the notes underneath the windshield wiper of a church van. I got in my truck, and I drove 10 hours back home. The camp speaker left the camp. Wow. Just a P.S. to this story. God is good, and he has a sense of humor. So when, eight years later, I was actually hired by that same church and had to go back to that same camp as a camp speaker, I just assumed God was doing it because he wanted me to not feel rejected by the church that I had snubbed eight years earlier, the church that goes every year to Happy Camp, California for its rafting trip, the church called First Presbyterian Church of Bellevue. Oh, it's funny. You think it's funny? I had to go back. That's the silly example, a more serious example. Columbine, 1999. Two rejected outsiders manifest their pain of their rejection, the death of their rejection, by bringing death to their classmates, to their teacher. This is often the case in these kinds of scenarios. Someone who is not included, and that pain is so intense that it gets manifested in death for others, or maybe suicide, or if it's not one of these physical acts, it's just dying inside. To belong is what we were made for. To be rejected, to fill on the outside is death, which is why this third observation is so crucial to our understanding and practice of hospitality, and it's this. Witness equals hospitality. Hospitality equals witness. In the church of my childhood, we often talked about being a good witness, and being a good witness meant that you, you know, you're living a good life. You know, you weren't cursing, you weren't drinking, you weren't dancing. All the things I now do as an adult, you weren't allowed to do. It also meant that you sort of knew intellectually the facts of your Christian faith and could present them in such a concise and just an amazing way that as soon as you shared that with somebody, they would just convert on the spot. That's what it meant to be a witness as I was growing up. Now, I'm not sure the world ever worked that way, that you could just argue somebody in. For some folks, that does work. But in our world that is saturated, it's totally saturated with marketing and advertisement, nobody cares much anymore about how articulate your arguments are for your faith. Yes, it's still important to understand what you believe. But unless what you believe permeates every little part of your lifestyle in a way that makes it better, 
Nobody cares. Let me unpack that just a little bit more. If you are a witness to something good, all you're doing is you're, you're sharing that something good with somebody. You're saying, I got a new job. Or as it is in my Facebook feed right now, it's just giants, giants, San Francisco gi- giants. None of you care, I know, but that's where I used to live. Thank you. I see that, I see that hand. Um, I like what one of my Facebook friends put on her profile under religious preferences. She wrote this. If I find the best chocolate chip cookies in the world, I'm going to tell you about it. To be a witness is simply to tell the good news you've personally experienced, not in order to convert somebody, but because you can't help it. You just found the best chocolate chip cookies in the world, and you got to try these. The message paraphrase of Matthew chapter 5, which we read earlier, puts the experience this way. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. A big problem on our part is that many of us, if not most of us, have not experienced much of that joyful dance ourselves. So we're kind of talking about stuff we haven't even experienced necessarily. We kind of share our faith out of obligation. I should tell people about Jesus. He loves them after all. I'm not sure about for me, but he loves you. When conversion is our primary goal, the emphasis falls on our sales pitch, on the cleverness of our marketing, on the excitement of our new program. But when being open about the joy we've experienced, oh, these chocolates of cookies, oh, Jesus. When that's the goal, a safe space is created that allows for friendship and personal transformation to bloom and to blossom. That's why, that's why opening up our lives, opening up our homes, sharing our stuff, practicing hospitality is one of the most effective forms of evangelism we have, especially today, especially today. Why is that? Because we live in such a transient part of the world. It's such a tumultuous season of history that everybody is hungry for home. People come from all over the world to live here, to work here, to go to school here, and that's awesome, but it also means that most of us don't feel at home here. This is not our home. This is where we work. This is not our home. This is where we go to school. In addition, with just technology developing so fast and the fact that we're always connected, always connected, We find it very challenging to hear our own thoughts, to feel at home in our own skins because there's just too much noise. And all that noise makes us deaf to the experience of intimacy with Jesus and with one another. And so we are hungry for a taste of home. We are desperate for home. And we have the opportunity as people included in that perichoresis, in that joyful, intimate dance that is home, to open ourselves up to others and just share, to be a little taste of home. As we do that, things can change dramatically, which leads me to this final observation, and it's this. Hospitality equals transformation. Inclusion leads to transformation. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus is under attack by some of the religious leaders of his day. And listen listen in on, on kind of what is going on here in this scene. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were people who were charged with protecting the reputation of God. 
It was their business to make sure people were believing the right things and acting in the right ways. This, that's a pretty honorable thing. But they missed the point, just like we do sometimes. So they made this charge against Jesus. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Now, these sinners and tax collectors, tax collectors, they stole money from their own people, from the Jews, and kind of shared it with the Romans, and they had this whole little dark thing going, and they were just hated by their fellow Jews. Sinners, that wasn't a word that Jesus ever used. Did you know that? Sinners was used by the religious leaders, say it's those people, the outcasts, the outsiders. So Jesus scandalized the religious leaders of his day by welcoming tax collectors, and even more scandalous, he eats with them. Again, in Middle Eastern culture, this was monumental. In Middle Eastern culture, especially in that day, to share a meal together is this covenant act that says your friends are now my friends. Your enemies are now my enemies. And we are family for life because we shared this meal. It's a little different than getting Starbucks together, isn't it? We are family for life. So when Jesus welcomes sinners and tax collectors and eats with them, the religious leaders feel he is shaming the reputation of God. God would never do that. Eventually, their charge turns into a death sentence on the cross. But here's what's amazing. The fact that Jesus included these outsiders, these sinners, these tax collectors, us, transformed them into sons and daughters. Not sinners, not tax collectors, sons, daughters. And as a result, we see Mary Magdalene, the prostitute, become a daughter of God. We see hated Roman soldiers confessing Jesus as the Son of God. We see religious bigots become vehicles of God's grace and love. We see murderers become world evangelists. Everywhere Jesus opens up his life, transformation happens. And this is what he modeled for us so that we could do the same that we might open the doors of our lives, of our homes, even of our very stuff. And in so doing, open up the heaven that God is bringing to earth. Well, we kind of hear that. So what? So what? Well, in response to being included in this intimate dance with our creator, we are compelled to include, compelled to invite. This is not an exclusive belonging. This is a belonging that manifests itself in inclusivity. So, what if we had eyes to see the people right in front of us who are desperate from some semblance of home? And what if we, out of our own little taste of home, could open our lives, our hearts, our homes, our stuff, and bring people in? I believe a movement of that kind of hospitality would transform our neighbors, our culture, our world. It did in the first century. That's what we find in Acts chapter 2, that when people were practicing this kind of hospitality that happens as a result of God bringing revival, thousands, literally thousands of people flock to join in. That is a compelling image, a place where you belong, where you matter. That's what the church is supposed to be. A lot of this is going to happen here inside church walls. More of it is going to happen outside of church walls, in your neighborhoods, among your coworkers, at school. Let me just close then with a couple of homework ideas to make this all the more practical. The first is this. Make yourself at home. Make yourself at home. Take stock of your own at-homeness with Jesus. How much do you feel that sense of belonging? If you're like me, it comes and goes, especially goes. 
Maybe you're there too. When I lived in Palo Alto, California, my next door neighbor had one of these. Some of you know what that is. That is a Bugatti Veyron. It tops out at over 250 miles an hour. It costs $2 million. I always wanted him to just give that to me because I feel like that would have, I wouldn't have kept it. I would have sold it and just fed a lot of people and paid for student loans. But it costs $30,000 to change the tire on this because they send a specialist out from the factory over in Italy to come change it for you. 30 grand. Ka-ching! Now, most of us on the pastoral staff cannot afford that. But what's amazing about that, what's amazing about that is that my landlord got to drive it. It was a generous guy. He got to drive it. And what, he, what struck him was that this thing is obviously insanely fast. But more than anything, what struck him was all over the dashboard were these dirty footprints and dirty fingerprints. And there were just crumbs and cookies and stuff all over the floor because dad always took his kids in this car out for a drive. We're sort of part of the Bugatti Veyron because of Jesus and what he's done. We are included. And because it's dad's stuff, we get to make ourselves at home. Do whatever you can to get involved, to become known. I know it's hard. I've been here two years. I have a fairly visible role. I'm still just making friends. So if that's you, hang in there. But we've got to do everything we can to make ourselves at home because it's out of that sense of at-homeness that the second part comes, and that's just to invite. Invite. This week, this very week, the week that we're just starting, I am going to encourage you to invite someone to something, to share a meal in your home, to come over to your birthday party, somebody preferably outside of your normal circles, maybe just one more layer out. It doesn't have to be for something this week. It could be something for down the road, but make the invite this week because there's something radical and kingdom breaking through about practicing hospitality. We have been invited into this, this intimate, joy-filled dance, this perichoresis, perfect fellowship with God himself. You belong. That is your identity. I know it doesn't feel that way because culture is always working against us in that. Nevertheless, your identity as a follower of Jesus is that you belong. You are caught up in that joyful dance. You are part of that. This is your reality. One, as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are. May we have the imagination to embrace that, and the courage to seek that out, to seek others out, to include them. Would you pray with me? Jesus, first and foremost, thank you for taking the initiative to include us, that we might belong to you. And God, we confess that, that it doesn't feel much like belonging most of the time. Most of the time, it feels like alienation, disorientation, so I pray first, would your Holy Spirit come upon us and fill us to overflowing such that we would know we belong, we would feel it in our bones. And out of that belonging, would we become a place? Would we become neighbors, coworkers, fellow students who would be known for their radical inclusiveness? We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.